Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Now, a few notes before we get started tonight. I, um, I want to acknowledge the sudden death of a beloved Amherst College professor, of computer science, Lyle McGew. Lyle was an amazing man who always had a smile, a kind word, and an offer of help to anyone who needed it. He will be sorely missed. The world is a little less kind and a little less bright now that he is no longer in it. On a less personal note, (laughs) I'd also like to acknowledge the death of cosmonaut Alexei Leonov, who was the first person to walk in space. And finally, an anniversary. On October 11th, 1984, NASA astronaut Kathy Sullivan actually became the first woman to walk in space. And we're finally going to be able to get that all-female spacewalk later this month, hopefully on the 21st. Uh, you'll remember that Christina Coe, um, or Koch, I'm don't remember how she pronounces it, and Jessica Muir were delayed due to the lack of spacesuits uh, that would fit them properly in uh, during the previous uh, possibility. Okay, so that's all squared away. Let us start with tonight's stories. And so tonight we start with a story that is a win for uh, Native American sovereignty um, and is slightly bittersweet um, for those of us with a more Western uh, frame of mind, but I think that it's overall important and good. So after more than a hundred years, Native American remains and grave goods, which were looted in the 1890s from Mesa Verde and which have been in a museum in Finland, will be returning to the Mesa Verde National Park in Southwest Colorado. Remains and goods from the ancestral Puebloan people, which were taken by the Swedish researcher Gustav Nordenskjold, are being returned as part of an agreement between the United States and Finland. This is giving hope to Native tribes that other such arrangements may be made in the future. It's like an awakening, says Bernadette Kuth. Cuthair, Director of Planning and Development for the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe. Any human remains are very sacred to us, and we have to make it right again. Now the ruins, which were built and inhabited from around 800 to 1200 CE, were first quote-unquote found. Um, Again, discovered is not a uh, great word for this The people who already lived there were perfectly happy and knew exactly where they were. Um, So they were first, quote unquote, found by Europeans in the 1870s as part of the Hayden Survey, which was an exploration of the American West, um, one of the most thorough ones. Um, And so this was after, of course, Lewis and Clark. um, But that was when they were found. And of course, then almost immediately, uh, the dwellings and associated areas were started to be looted. And so in 1891, Nordenskjold arrived from Denver to begin studying the site. 
He thought this was a civilization that ought to be documented, that it was a story that ought to be told, said Judith Reynolds, a Durango resident who wrote a biography about Nordenskjold in 2006 with her husband, David. And so basically he saw that many things were being looted. So he began to pack up and ship artifacts, including hundreds of tools, pottery, and unfortunately even human remains to Europe. Now, interestingly, once word got out that he was taking artifacts from the area, he was actually arrested, but ultimately the charges had to be dropped because at the time there was nothing illegal about taking Native American relics uh, or even their remains. And so two years later, he published a seminal work on the ruins of Mesa Verde, which is actually still considered a foundational text. Uh, also, interestingly, though, uh, this has a bit of a twist. His actions actually sparked the belief that there needed to be a law against such removals. And so ultimately, he helped uh, lead to the Antiquities Act, which was finally signed in 1906. And that was also the same year of the establishment of the Mesa Verde National Park. And so um, even though very mixed uh, ideas about what he was doing, ultimately, a lot of things, a lot of good came from his actions, except for, of course, this fact that these artifacts remained in Europe. And so, of course, people's feelings on this remain divided. Well, he took more than 600 artifacts that have remained at the Museum of Culture in Helsinki, Finland. He definitely probably believed it was for the best to prevent them from being looted and lost to private dealers and owners. For me, he's the good guy because I understand the scientific approach he was about, Reynolds said. He was the first person to do a scientific study that recognized the importance of the history there. Now, negotiations began in 2016 between tribes associated with the park and Finland. Clark Tanak Hangava, vice chairman of the Hopi tribe, told the Associated Press that items should be returned early next year. I know we'll work together as the various tribes that have interest in them, he told the AP, and how we process them will be the most will be the most carefully thought out plan so that we don't do any more harm than what's already been done. And so the tribes will rebury the remains and funerary objects, um, basically as close to where they were originally found as possible. They need to be returned there so they can return to the spirit world in the next world, he said. Christy Brown, spokeswoman for Mesa Verde, said staff will work with the tribes on reburials and ceremonies to take place in the park. Now, again, this is an ethical issue that doesn't have an easy answer. While the wishes of Native American people should be respected, returning artifacts to the ground can be hard for those of us who were raised in a Western frame of mind where such objects should be preserved in museums for future generations. Um... You know, I struggle myself with the issue of giving up these objects to the ground. Now, I say the objects, obviously, the human remains, I'm 100% um, complete agreement that those should be repatriated, they should be reburied, there's no reason for them to still be um, on display. And, you know, 
there's a whole, uh, we could do an entire program just on the idea of ownership of human remains in um, museums. But um, the objects, that's a little bit harder for me. And so um, the thing is, is that even though I struggle with it, I understand that it is absolutely the right thing to do given the long history of abuse and exploitation that has plagued Native American artifacts, remains, and Native American peoples themselves. Um, and so I think that this is the right thing to do. Um, we certainly have a lot of information about those items. We'll be able to, uh, you know, still make reference to them, even if we don't have them physically in hand anymore. And so I think that it's overall absolutely the right thing to do. Okay, so let's move on now. And we are going to talk about a new study that deals with the human skeleton, um, not any skeleton in particular, just human skeletons. Um, and it's actually being touted as something that it probably isn't. <laughs> and uh, so I saw a lot of headlines that reported this kind of credulous, credulously. And so this new paper purports to have found that the human skull conforms to the so-called golden ratio. Now, the golden ratio is an infinite number with an approximate value of 1.618. We talked about approximating uh, infinite numbers the other day. And so it's calculated by dividing a line into two unequal parts, such that the longer part divided by the smaller part is equal to the entire line divided by the longer part. So uh, it can be written as A over B equals A plus B over A. Now, it's supposed to have been found in all sorts of things, including a snail's shell, the Parthenon, the pyramids. None of those is actually true, by the way. But it is true that it describes how some seeds or leaves are arranged, and it's also inspired artists like Salvador Dali. Um, my favorite example is there's a, um, and it's almost my favorite example because it shows how you can kind of find it in all sorts of weird places if you really look, um, is that there is a picture of um, a, some one of the Eastern European parliaments and people are basically having a fight and someone snapped a picture and someone put the golden ratio um, lines on that picture. And uh, so it very much looks like a Renaissance picture when you do that. And but you know, this was literally just people having a fight. Um, so clearly it was not meant to express this uh, golden ratio. And so golden ratio has definitely been kind of overhyped uh, over the years. Now, this, this actually isn't the first time that researchers have even tried to tie the golden ratio to the human body. Others have suggested that it can be found in our fingers, a fertile uterus, uh, red blood cells, and even in healthy blood pressure. But this is the first time it's been spotted, supposedly, in the human skull. And so lead author, Dr. Rafael Tamargo, professor of neurosurgery at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, measured people's brains during years of surgery. And so initially he would just use a tape measure. Um, and so he kept finding what he thought was the significant um, information. And so he moved on after some time to using CAT scans. And so ultimately, he looked at 100 patients, along with his colleague, Dr. Jonathan Pendrick, 
who is a neurosurgeon at Nationwide Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of neurological surgery at the Ohio State University College of Medicine. Now, he noted that two imaginary lines in the skull followed the golden ratio. One line would extend from the base of the nose near the eyebrows, called the nasian, to a point at the bottom of the back of the head, called the inian. Now, the other line would extend from the nasian to a point at the top of the head where three bones of the skull meet, called the bregma. Now, they found that on average, the line from the nasian to the inian divided by the line from the bregma to the inian was on average 1.64. The line from the bregma to the inian divided by the line from the nasion to the bregma was on average equal to 1.57. By taking those numbers and allowing for them to be quote unquote with a standard of error, they fall roughly within the range of the golden ratio, according to Tamargo. But um, as you have probably noticed, uh, the ratio is 1.618, and these were 1.64 and 1.57, respectively. So it's already a stretch at this point. And then, of course, as I've mentioned, you can always find two lines that can be drawn to create a golden ratio in almost anything. So the importance would have to come from these structures having meaning in other contexts. Now, Tamargo argues that the line from the nasion to the pregma is a very important line because in almost all mammals it encompasses the midline of the brain and it gives you an idea of the complexity of the animal. Now, of course, as I've noted above, many anatomists are not convinced by his argument. Lawrence Whitmer, a professor of anatomy at Ohio University who was not involved in the study, obviously, uh, notes, there are any numbers of problems, not least of which is that their own data on humans do not support the golden ratio, since they didn't find 1.618, but rather 1.64, which is a significant difference in these kinds of things. The numbers are close, but not some magical convergence on a mathematical ideal, he told Life Science. This whole thing seems to be an attempt to place humans apart from other animals, he added. Now, Tamargo and his team did also look at 70 skulls from six other mammals, uh, from the collections of the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. They found that there was not a readily discernible ratio mirroring that supposedly found in humans. It's a small sample, but there may be an indication that as you increase the complexity of the animal, of the organism, then the skull could approach the golden ratio, Tamargo said. I would be very interested in looking at the skulls of chimpanzees and bonobos to see what their numbers are. Since, of course, primates are the closest to humans uh, in terms of intellect, he added. Now, he suggested that approaching the golden ratio might be moving towards an optimized structure or function. However, again, the anatomists are not convinced. Uh, for instance, Dale Ritter, the lead human anatomist, 
human anatomy instructor for Alpert Medical School at Brown University uh, down in Rhode Island, who was also, of course, not part of the study, notes that the presence of this ratio in disparate species and systems does not translate to it being an underpinning of optimized structure and function or an indication of efficacy. I believe the overarching problem with this paper is that there is very little, perhaps no, science in it. <laughs> but with so many bones and so many points of interest on those bones, I'd imagine there would be at least a few golden ratios elsewhere in the human skeletal system. He had it. Now, of course, my natural cynicism wonders if uh, Dr. Tamargo isn't fishing for a Templeton Award. Um, and so the Templeton Foundation awards money to researchers who, however tenuously, and I mean however tenuously, have some way of connecting the world of science to religion. Um, and of course, the Templeton foundation is a little bit notorious in scientific circles because they uh basically the, the conclusion is baked into their hypothesis um and that's not how science works uh you can't say that we are only looking for this one thing that's not how science works um and so this idea that you can only look at studies and things that point to a connection between science and religion is pretty uh, disturbing to a lot of scientists. But, you know, it's also grant money and grant money is hard to get. And so uh, sometimes they will award money to people who you would not necessarily would have had anything to do with the Templeton Foundation. But again, unfortunately, money is money. Um, but the Templeton Foundation is a very odd um you know, foundation that's out there trying to do this sort of uh, connecting of disparate dots to form lines, much like <laughs> trying to find the golden ratio in a human brain or a human skull. Okay, so let's move on now and talk about a new discovery in amber. So of course, as you probably know, amber is amazing. It is uh, the um, hardened, uh, semi-fossilized. I don't really feel like it, it's not fossilized because it's not being, um, it's not being replaced with minerals. So it's just, it's the solidified, um, sap from certain trees. And what happens is that as the sap is moving down the tree initially, after it's been released from the tree, it tends to be very sticky. And so all sorts of things get caught up in it. And then later on, that sap solidifies into rock and you get amber, which is both very beautiful in and of itself and amazing because you find all of these tiny um, and not so tiny sometimes uh, animals and uh, other parts of plants and everything in them. And so last week we talked about tardigrades. And so this week we have a newly discovered microscopic creature that has been dubbed Sialomorpha dominicana or the mold pig. <laughs> so tardigrades are often called water bears or uh, moss um, moss bears and um, or moss some other kind of animal. I forget what. 
maybe moss pigs. Um, but these are mold pigs. <laughs> so the new extinct animal is like is unlike anything seen before in the fossil record. It was found in 30 million year old amber found in the Dominican Republic, hence the name. Now, paleobiologist George Poinar Jr. from Oregon State University and invertebrate zoologist Diane Nelson from East Tennessee State University discovered the creature named after its porcine appearance and its diet, which would have considered mostly uh, would have been consisted primarily of fungi. And so publishing in the journal Invertebrate Biology, the researchers detailed their examination of hundreds of specimens, each no more than 100 micrometers long, found in the amber. It took me many days, weeks, and months to examine. And then under the compound microscope, Poinar wrote in an email, they are as small as the smallest tardigrades, and they have eight legs like tardigrades. However, they possess mandibles, but no claws, whereas tardigrades have claws and stylet mouth parts. So basically a stylet mouth part uh, has a sharp and piercing um, appendage, whereas um, mandibles tend to have more of a crushing motion, and they're uh, a little bit different. And so because there were so many of them in the example, the researchers were actually able to study the anatomy, reproductive behavior, growth, development, and diet of the animals. They were able to note that they had flexible heads and exoskeletons, which they molted as they grew. Now, they would have lived in a moist, warm environment and fed mostly on fungi and the occasional small invertebrate. Now, also found in the amber were pseudoscorpions, nematodes, said fungi, and other protozoa. Now, because they are seemingly unique, they have been assigned an entirely new family, genus, and species. The, quote, fossil shares characteristics with both tardigrades and mites, but clearly belong to neither group, wrote the authors in their paper. And it turns out, basically, we have no idea beyond what we can tell from the specimens. Uh, we have no idea what they evolved from, um, if there are still descendant species alive. We have no idea. Um, but as a little tidbit of trivia, uh, George, George Poinar uh, Jr. is actually the scientist who inspired Michael Crichton um, with work on uh, insects in amber and especially mosquitoes and sort of gave him the idea of uh, having dinosaurs be able to be recreated from blood taken from ancient uh, mosquitoes. So his work actually was the one that uh, inspired that. Now, of course, it's not really the kind of thing that would happen. Um, he definitely didn't suggest that it would happen. It was just Michael Crichton looked at his work and went from there uh, off into the more fantastic realm. Okay, so let us actually take a break um, and then we will come back and talk about some actual living pigs and how cool they are. So they've done something new that no one's ever noticed before. 
Uh, so we are going to take a few minutes and then we will be back with that story. You are listening to WXOJLP 103.3 FM in Northampton, Massachusetts, and this is Evidence-Based Radio. Hang on. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can, too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. What could be more amazing than peak foliage season in Connecticut? Dropping a music festival right in the middle of it. The Black Bear Americana Music Festival is coming to the Goshen Fairgrounds October 11th, 12th, and 13th. Come for the day or camp out for the weekend. There's more than 40 bands on four stages. Amazing food, crafts, dancing, workshops, jam tents, and nationally touring acts that will simply blow your mind. Come to BlackBearMusicFest.com for more info. That's BlackBearMusicFest.com. Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Remember, adopt. Drummond Bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on the Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drummond Bass Association by listening to Drummond Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10 Saturday nights. Looking for an international experience but unable to travel? Consider hosting an adult international student studying English. Maybe from the Congo, Iran, Tibet, Saudi Arabia, Spain, Uganda, Tunisia, India, or Iraq. We need friendly hosts interested in a true cross-cultural interchange, fluent in English, and living within a 15-minute walk or convenient bus ride to downtown Northampton. Join ILI's nonprofit effort to create language and cultural immersion experiences for our students. A stipend offsets costs. For more details, go to www.ili.edu or email amy at ili.edu. We're the International Language Institute of Massachusetts in downtown Northampton. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Sure. Okay, we are back. And uh, I was informed by a listener that the other uh, name for tardigrades is moss piglets. So again, pig themed. And so let's talk about some living pigs. New video shows Visayan warty pigs, or Sus 
Sebifrons using tools. <laughs> and so for the last three years, a team led by biologist Meredith Root Bernstein from the Institute of Ecology and Biodiversity in Chile and the French National Institute for Agricultural Research has been observing the animals using sticks and bark to dig nests in their zoo enclosures. And so the research, researchers believe that this behavior is not instinctual and thus highlights that the pigs have adaptive intelligence and are able to apply social learning. Now, we already knew that pigs are highly intelligent, so it's not unsurprising that this kind of behavior uh, would be available to them, but it's unusual that it hasn't been observed before now. Uh, and so Root Bernstein notes that, I was very surprised when I realized that there were no previous reports of tool use in pigs. Pigs are smart, playful, social, and like to manipulate objects, and they are omnivores, so they naturally have to process lots of different kinds of edible objects, all conditions that often are associated with tool use in other animals. Maybe people just haven't been paying attention enough. Or people may have observed different kinds of pigs using tools, but scientists just didn't hear about it. Now, of course, there's basically only a handful of other animals that have been known to use tools uh, other than humans. So, uh, for instance, dolphins, otters, um, elephants, animals like that, all animals associated with very high intelligence um, and like three or four others, um, obviously, including some um, of our close cousins. Now, the behavior was first observed accidentally. A researcher at the Menagerie of the Jardin des Plantes in Paris, uh, in Paris, France, uh, caught a Visayan warty pig using a tool. This prompted a rigorous investigation that lasted between 2015 and 2017. Little is known about the natural behavior of these pigs. They're actually an endangered species from the Philippines. We do know that they are social animals that comb the forest floor for various food sources. Again, pigs are omnivores, so they eat a little bit of everything. Females dig nests and line them with leaves to create a safe space for raising their piglets. It was in making these nests that tool use was observed. For the analysis, the scientists chose a definition of tool use devised by scientist Robert St. Amant and Thomas Horton from North Carolina State University. And so they describe tool use as the exertion of control over a freely manipulatable external object, the tool, with the goal of one, altering the physical properties of another object, substance, surface, or medium via a dynamic me mechanical interaction, or two, mediating the flow of information. And so there were four pigs, all bred in cactus, captivity involved in the study. Priscilla, who was born in 2007, Billy, who was a male born in 2009, and their two female offspring born in 2012, eventually named Antonia and Beatrice. Now, over the three years, 11 instances of tool use, specifically with barks and sticks, uh, to aid in nest building was observed. And so the pigs used the items like a shovel, moving them back and forth to produce a digging action that was very clear. 
And in fact, all four pigs were observed using the tools, even um, Billy, who wouldn't necessarily, you would think, be involved in it, but apparently they all, they were all involved. Now, this is really interesting. In 2015, the researchers tried adding more leaves to the enclosure, hoping to stimulate more tool use, but it didn't work. In 2016, they simply watched the pigs, and there was a whole bunch of instances of spontaneous tool use. And then in 2017, they tried again by adding a spatula to the available items for tool use, but once again, the pigs were unimpressed. (laughs) Now, importantly, the tool use was unprompted. By unprompted, we meant that we didn't set up a situation in which there was a problem to solve and a tool that could be used to solve it with like what would happen in a controlled experiment, explained Root Bernstein. Now, the researchers also observed a distinct behavior that they referred to as moonwalking. It was the behavior that always preceded tool use in the nest building steps, said Root Bernstein. The pigs really looked like they were in they were imitating the move by Michael Jackson. They did it to push soil backwards to form the walls of the nest. The pigs were quite playful and had distinct personalities. We often laughed about them while carrying out the observations. And so this set of observations expands our understanding of the level of social learning available to pigs. And so we know a little bit already, for instance, wild boars have been observed washing food, which is a trait that they likely learned from watching other animals. We suggest that the Visayan warty pigs in our study probably learned the behavior from the mother, Priscilla, who may have invented it because she does it the most. But we are just speculating based on known patterns of social learning and other species. It would be nice if someone would do some more sophisticated studies of social learning in pigs. So hopefully someone will at some point and we will learn even more interesting things about them. And so, yeah, pigs are definitely uh, highly intelligent. They're highly social. Um, If I'm sure you've all seen at least one movie featuring adorable pigs being adorable um, and tugging at your heartstrings. Uh, But I, full disclosure, uh, I am a um, omnivore and I do still eat pork, even though I know I probably shouldn't, but um, yeah, (laughs) I always like to confess these things when talking about it. Okay, so let's move on now though, and talk about one of the workhorses of the research world, which is zebra finches. So zebra finches are used all over the place. Um, in sort of cognitive research, and especially in research on language acquisition and things like that. Um, They are used, again, in a very, in a variety of studies. Um, And so this new study actually brings up one of my favorite subjects. And that is the fact that your brain is lying to you all the time. (laughs) Brains are lying liars, and that's just what they do. Uh, What we see, hear, taste, smell, and touch are all interpreted by the brain and can be adjusted by the brain, meaning that we literally cannot trust our own eyes in some cases. Now, I always recommend reading the book, Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me, um, I'm sure that your local library has it or other places. Um, And so 
for those of you who really want to be sad, that is the book for you. Um, basically, it will let you know that you could never trust anything ever again. Um, but obviously, we have to live in the real world and we have to be realists. So you do have to uh, sort of believe what your uh, brain is telling you in most situations. Um, but in this book, an experiment is actually described wherein people are implanted with false memories. And I won't tell you too much about it because you should read the book. Um, but um, this is something that we know how to do. Now that's done using cognitive techniques. This is actually done doing a very interesting uh, technique that is kind of a new uh it's kind of new in science. It's only been used in probably the last 15 or 20 years. Um, so let's get into that. It looks like, um, and so uh, basically what they've done is they have implanted false memories into a group of zebra finches. So in the experiment, finches who usually learn to sing by listening to their fathers were taught songs without the need to learn by implanting memories of the songs directly in the birds' brains. Now, the reason for this work, again, is to better understand the brain pathways that encode note duration in the birds in the hopes that it can uh, be then applied to learn more about how humans learn to speak, which could aim aid in gene and neuron targeting to help those who have conditions that affect vocalization. So um, I know that there are definitely um, people who have issues with getting words out and things like that. Um, my best friend from high school, one of her uh, sons has a um, speech problem where it's just really hard for him to get the right words out sometimes. And, um, you know, a lot of these are very... Um, difficult to study because they affect small amounts of people. And they also, again, deal with the brain, which we still know very little about. If this is another one of those, how much can you, how much can a part of the system know about the system? Um, which is always this giant conundrum for me, um, because really, realistically, how much can someone know about a brain using their own brain? It's that weird loop again. Um, but let's not get into the weeds of philosophy. <laughs> Um, let us talk about this actual real thing that they did. This is the first time we have confirmed brain regions that encode behavioral goal memories. Those memories that guide us to when we want to imitate anything from speech to learning the piano. Todd Roberts, a neuroscientist at the University of Texas Southwestern O'Donnell Brain Institute said in a statement, the findings enable us to implant these memories into the birds and guide the learning of their song. And so zebra finches, Tanio pigia gutara, are social birds native to Central America and popular as pets. Now, Roberts and his team used optogenetics to modify the finch's neurons without ever exposing them to singing. And so again, this is a pretty wild technique. It involves using pulses of light to control the behavior of photosensitive proteins in neurons in the brain, allowing the researchers to control when those neurons fire. And so they were able to alter brain activity in a sensor sensoromotor area known as NIF. 
And this in turn sends signals to a specialized region of the songbird's brain called the HVC. This area is involved in both learning and producing bird songs. And so using the pulsing light in a particular rhythm, the researchers were able to encode memories, quote unquote, uh, directly into the finch's brains with the rhythm corresponding to the duration of each note in the song. Now, of course, this doesn't actually teach the birds the song in whole uh, in the same way that it would be if they were listening to their fathers. Uh, duration is just, of course, part of the song. Pitch and melody are also very important. And so far, they have not found a mechanism to encode these parts of the song. We're not teaching the birds everything it needs to know, just the duration of syllables in its song, Robert said. The two brain regions we tested in this study represent just one piece of the puzzle. And so the link between the HVC and the NIF is crucial for singing. The researchers noted in their paper, which was published in the journal Science, if the two regions are cut off from one another after a bird has learned to sing, the bird can still sing. But if they are separated before the song was memorized, the bird will actually never be able to develop the ability to sing the song. So how does this unique pathway for song memorization concern human language development? The human brain and the pathways associated with speech and language are immensely more complicated than the songbird's circuitry, Robert said. But our research is providing strong clues of where to look for more insights on neurodevelopmental disorders. And so, of course, again, that's a big issue because the more that we can understand how the brain works, the more likely we are to be able to develop ways to combat it in order to give people a better chance at being able to communicate. Okay, so let's totally shift now and talk about an object that uh, sort of melds space and biology, but is definitely uh, space-based, which is a meteorite. And so this meteorite called Aguas Zarcas from the region of Costa Rica, where it landed earlier this year, is a rare type that might help researchers understand better how life began on Earth. And so the meteorite is the latest addition to the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. It looks like a block of mud brick and smells, according to some, like pungent vegetables. The four-pound rock is supposed to smell, more specifically, like cooked Brussels sprouts. Now, this odor comes from organic compounds such as amino acids. Billions of years ago, such meteorites likely seeded the earth with these building blocks. And so that actually, will studying it, will let scientists look at the rock for clues about the material which formed our solar system. The Aguas Zarcas meteorite fell to Earth on April 23rd in Costa Rica's Alauela province in a spectacular fireball, apparently. The meteorite broke apart during entry with one chunk smashing into a house and another striking a doghouse. Um, and so... This major part of it was able to be recovered and is um, now in the museum. Now, there are generally three types of meteorites. Those, com those composed mostly of iron, 
those that are stony, or a mix of stone and metal in equal quantities. This particular mud ball is a type of stony meteorite known as a carbonaceous chondrite, which we've talked about before. Now, these make up only about 4% of all meteorites that strike the Earth, according to Philip Heck, the Robert A. Pritzker Associate Curator of Meteoritics and Polar Studies at the Field Museum. And so they're rare because most asteroids from which meteorites originate have had chemical changes over time that destroy the amino acids. Now, many carbonaceous chondrites contain organic compounds, though they often become contaminated with terrestrial amino acids once they hit the earth. And why the smell? We smell the organic volatile compounds that leave the meteorite, Heck explained. Different meteorites have different volatile inventories, mainly because they were cooked to different degrees for different amounts of time on their parent asteroids. That causes them to smell differently. And so one of the most well-studied of this type of meteorite is the Murchison meteorite, which is also at the field. It fell in 1969 and has a more tar-like smell. And as for the taste, well, geologists actually often do taste terrestrial rocks, but never extraterrestrial rocks. First, because we don't want to contaminate them. Second, because we don't want to expose them to liquid water, which degrades them, particularly the metal and water-soluble minerals and organics. And third, because some meteorites contain harmful materials when eaten, heck explained. <laughs> so yeah, um, definitely hilarious on that point. Um, and so yeah, that's a thing. Uh, if you didn't know that geologists will often taste rocks to figure out what they are, um, so you definitely, lots of people learn about how to do that in, as they're becoming geologists. And so, yeah. Okay, let us move on and let us talk, out, talk about something that is also about finding organic remains in rock, but is a little more terrestrial based. And so it turns out that it might be much more likely to be able to discover the remains of ancient proteins in some dinosaur fossils. Now, once again, we return to the storage rooms of a museum, one of my favorite places and one of the favorite uh, places for new discoveries. This time, it's Yale University's Peabody Museum of Natural History. And so Jasmina Weissman, or Wyman, excuse me, was examining a deep, black, sharp, sickle-shaped dinosaur claw. This is the type specimen of Dionychus, the basis for the Velociraptor in the Jurassic Park movies. Apparently that's a theme tonight, uh, she says. And so it turns out that this specimen with its dark black color suggests that much of the claw is preserved rather than a mineral replica, as is more typical with dino most dinosaur bones. I bet this specimen is maybe 70% organic material by volume, more than we'd think, she noted. Uh, we've known that fossils can contain organic materials, but dinosaurs lived so long ago that researchers generally believed that the information contained in these proteins would have long since vanished. But Wyman and her PhD advisor, Derek Briggs, have found a way to extract information from degraded proteins even in fossils that are millions of years old. 
this molecular preservation is really common, and we just didn't know, Wyman says. It turns out that with the proper conditions affecting an organism in the uh, weeks after it dies, cellular proteins can react with lipids and sugars. This transforms the proteins into a mix of polymers that repel water, resist microbes, and are impervious to heat, and which persist a lot longer than the original proteins. And so the proteins formed are chemically similar to those created when meat is browned or bread is toasted um, in what is called the uh, Maillard reaction. Now, several researchers have claimed to find intact proteins in the past, but skepticism has remained high until now because no explanation for how such proteins could have survived the ravages of time had previously been put forward. Now, Wyman was first inspired by dinosaur eggs. As an undergrad and master's student, she worked with a team led by Martin Sander at the University of Bonn in Germany. While studying pigmentation in dinosaur eggs, she found the remains of what looked like organic compounds, but she didn't have time at that point to investigate further. They actually were the ones who discovered that dinosaur eggs were usually more sort of a green-blue than white, and so they were able to um, distill the pigments by um, decalcifying these bits of eggshell. And so when you, when she was decalcifying them, she would also get these little bits of brown goop basically at the bottom. Um, and, you know, she did look at it from time to time and was, you know, thought it looked like it might be organic remains. There might even be some um, instances of cells and um, features of um, vasculation, but Again, that wasn't what they were looking for, and so she kind of had to put it to the side. But when she moved to work with Briggs at Yale, she entered a lab of an, ex of an expert in soft tissue preservation. And so she was able to work on just what that residue really was. And so the remains most likely to have this preservation actually come from black or brown fossils contained in lighter colored rocks. And so these would have formed in shallow seabeds or iron-rich sandstones. And so these are places that are prone to oxidation, with the water being alkaline and containing dissolved oxygen and metal ions. Now, the polymers don't preserve 3D structures, which is really important for proteins, um, or the complete sequence of amino acids, um, but they are incredibly stable, with traces having been found in 500 million year old fossils from Canada's Burgess Shale Formation in British Columbia. So that's huge. And so um, Wyman had to create a database of spectra that she could compare and contrast. And so basically, she looked at all of these samples using a type of scanning called Raman spectroscopy. And so at present, she scanned more than 100 specimens. Uh, again, she lucked out being at Yale, which has a huge collection. Um, and so because this is non-invasive, they were like, sure, <laughs> you can take these specimens out and use them because you're not hurting them. And so that she found that the spectra were truly informative. 
feeding the data into a computer, she found that it could correctly slot eggshell samples from more than a dozen dinosaurs and early birds into the correct phylogenetic tree. They found that bones and teeth have around a 60% match to known relationships. This is not something that is going to tell you how 10 hadrosaurs you found in a quarry were related, but if you find bits and pieces of turtle, stem bird, and crocodile, it can probably help you tell them apart, she says. And so one of the big things is that this is looking at those spectra. And so that's where you're finding this information. You're comparing the different spectra, which are um, the chemical signatures from these um, polymers. And so Maria McNamara of University College in Cork, Ireland, uh, who was not involved in the study, told the journal Science that Wyman very nicely came up with this very, very clever mechanism for how such preservation could be achieved by having the proteins transform into this alternative form. Now, the technique, again, is also non-invasive, which is a big bonus. And so um, in this Raman uh, spectroscopy, they shine a laser on the specimens, and this reveals the ancient chemical bonds, which they are then able to take spectra of. Now, as a proof of concept, the pair will be reporting in Australia this week that they've helped resolve where turtles fit on the vertebrate family tree and have found evidence to support the idea that pterosaurs were warm-blooded. Of course, considering the fact that they were the largest organisms ever to fly, that does make a fair amount of sense because, for one thing, flying is energy costly. And again, while this isn't a magical key to solving evolutionary questions, it's still impressive. It's a completely new level of understanding of preservation. They are shedding light on the why and how, said Jingmai O'Connor, a paleontologist at the Institute of Vertebrate Paleontology and, a paleoanthropolo and Paleoanthropology in Beijing. It's incredible how Wyman is revolutionizing our field, opening so many new doors by applying chemistry to a field where chemistry has rarely been applied. And so an independent lab has yet to replicate the work, so it is still considered preliminary. But Wyman is actually excited to have that happen because um, she acknowledges that they will need the help of other researchers to develop and refine the method for all sorts of applications. And so, yeah, it's been very cool. And so one of the things that they looked at and one of the ways in which they did um, pointed towards warm-bloodedness is they were actually able to tell the difference between changes to the proteins via this Maillard reaction and via the fact that oxidation happens a lot more in warm-blooded animals. And so they were able to sort of pick out ones that looked like they were more likely warm-blooded than from those that were less warm-blooded, like early crocodiles and um, early... Um, four-legged dinosaurs like um, triceratops and things like that all right so that is all the time we have for tonight um thank you for staying and listening to evidence-based radio on wxojlp 103.3 fm in northampton massachusetts evidence-based radio is a member of the planetside podcast network to learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com.
The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.